So we're joined today by Sandra Cavallo Miller, who will be reading from and talking about her book, Out of Patience. Sandra, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. Oh, wonderful. Anytime. So let's just dive right in. So Nora is 58. And her mother, who seems to be a really prominent character throughout the book, now she's 86. I personally love that both characters are older. Where did the idea for Out of Patience come from? Out of Patience was a book that I started very suddenly during the depths of the pandemic. I was you know, pretty isolated and I had written several novels about younger women. Uh, One, I have the series at the Grand Canyon, which is a young woman doctor who working at the Grand Canyon Clinic, which is very adventurous and a lot of geology. Um, Then I wrote one about a public health worker uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, where I lived for a very long time. And, uh, And I had some friends who were in public health, and I based it on a lot of their experiences. Um, And uh, then I just wanted to do something different and look at medicine in a way that I was feeling because so many people that I knew were getting run down on modern medicine. And it really felt like something that needed to be written that I wanted to write and bringing in the mom. I mean, people live to be pretty old these days. Uh, That is just such a great experience to still have a relationship with the parent, but it often also has its difficulties. And so Nora and her mom, who mostly converse by phone because they live about 30 miles apart, probably, and they have this kind of give and take relationship that goes way back to Nora's childhood when her mother was sometimes present, sometimes not. There's also a brother um, who was very ill with a a genetic disease um, that created to the that added to the dynamic between Nora and her mother. Could we have a reading, please? Absolutely. Thank you. I'm just going to start with the beginning of the book because I think it sets the tone. I just dive right into this. They say that a career in medicine is among the most fulfilling pursuits a person can undertake. That as a physician, you will enjoy a lifetime of rewards and respect and that the sacrifices are worth it. They're wrong. Take this past afternoon. Things weren't going great and I felt a headache coming on, that familiar nag. Getting enough sleep usually kept those headaches at bay, but sleep had become elusive. Even though old Anna Merriweather's appointment said she had a hip problem, within one minute of saying hello, she wept softly and crushed my hand in a grip worthy of a Steve door. Some of these elderly ladies with tissue paper skin and feathery white hair have the steely clamp of a welder's vice when they get upset. Oh, I feel like we can picture that. This, this, especially the the description of the hand. So you did just like drop us right in there. So thank you for that. So you were a physician. Can you yes. talk to us a little bit about how your own experiences as a physician went into like researching and the writing of the book? I had always been a writer as well as a physician. My path to medicine is fairly unusual. I always was one of these kids who was writing little stories, writing little poems, all of that. And everyone said, oh, you should go into journalism. You're you're a writer. That would be great for you. And so 
I was naive. I thought, okay, I should, I should go into journalism. And I started college in journalism and it was terrible <laughs> because it was mostly focused on reporting and, and gathering that kind of data. And uh, that wasn't what I wanted to do. And uh, I was also too timid for that. I, I wasn't going to go out and, you know, get into the thick of things. But they were just starting. They had a, another major called rhetoric in those days, which now is called creative writing. But um, this is a long time ago. And uh, so creative writing is what we call it now. But rhetoric, which is more like talking about things, debating things, um, is what my major turned out to be. But I knew I couldn't make a living in that. And um, that's, I was also interested in science. Um, I got a really scientific mathematical kind of mind as well and thought, well, I should at least apply to medical school, see if I can get in. And then when I don't get into medical school, I will become a biomedical librarian, which will suit just all parts, all the sides of my brain, and it would be perfect. And then I accidentally got into medical school. And I'm like, huh, (laughs) guess I'm doing this. But I, I actually consider myself a writer at heart. And uh, even though I didn't have a lot of time to do a lot of writing, I wrote some short stories and, and some poetry all through my career. Started out in private practice for 10 years, which was a, a lot what this is based on. And then I moved to a more academic practice where I worked in a residency program and taught doctors in training for the rest of my career. And so that's why the medical students and residents are also usually part of my stories, because that, that's where I've had the experience. And, and this one is more personal than most of my books. Like with the Grand Canyon books, people would always come up to me and say like, what was it like being a doctor at the Grand Canyon? I'm like, I wasn't. <laughs> I never was. <laughs> Remember, this is fiction. Um, I, I just knew people who had been doctors there. And so I heard their stories and, uh, and I was able to write them and use them as readers so they could say like, no, that never happens. Um, but so you have to have readers. Well, it helps to make it more authentic. But, um, uh, but so this is written more from my experience, but it's still fiction. It's still, this isn't me. People read and they think like, oh, these are the experiences you had. Well, some, but you, you really can't put a fiction author. This isn't a memoir. Memoirs for most people, unless you've had a really unus- interesting or unusual life, most people's stories don't really quite make it to the level of a, a book entertainment, I don't think. And so we very much need the fiction. Fiction's more fun. You know, you can do anything you want with it. You can create the characters. Most of the characters are compilations of people that you know, or, and then it just kind of takes off into your imagination. You know, there's, there's some very good, good people and some very bad people in my books. I always make sure we have that balance. Um, And I don't sugarcoat it with physicians either. There's good doctors and bad doctors. There's good patients and bad patients. And we talk about what makes a patient a good patient or a bad patient. And people don't like to think like the doctor sits there and thinks like, oh, I don't want to, I can't believe this person's here again. I really don't like them. Well, guess what? That happens. Um, and, uh, if you think you might be one of those patients, you should look at yourself. <laughs> Now's the time to change you, that. I'll guarantee you doctors think that at least a couple times a day. Um, <laughs> they don't, they don't show you that they don't reveal it. They better not, um, because you're a professional, but, uh, so that, that's what makes the fiction part of it much more fun than real life and you won't get you into trouble either any any of my characters that are based on real life nobody would recognize who they were because i've got layers and layers of change that i go through and half the time if it was a male character speaking based on i turn them into a female and i change their age and i change their 
the way they look. And, and so even if it's vaguely based on a real person, you would never recognize them. I love that we learned so much um, in reading the book. And so now we're all be going to it and being like, am I this sort of patient? Am I that sort of patient? Um, so, you know, we all want to be that good patient. <laughs> well, and I also hope people will think like, um, am I going to a, a good doctor or one who doesn't necessarily have my best interests in mind, you know, so we talk a little bit about the doctors who are kind of, you know, passing out meds a little bit too much or, you know, pushing an agenda that's, that's more theirs than the patient, um, you know, which, you know, is one of the things that got us in the opiate crisis that, that we're in. And, um, and so some of that is addressed as well. Oh, and doctors are human. That's the biggest, one of the biggest messages, you know, doctors have good days and bad days too, and they get frustrated and they get upset and they want to walk out the door a lot. Um, it's incredibly stressful. You never know. The next person who comes in with a sore throat probably has a cold, but maybe they've got throat cancer. Um, and, you know, you're just constantly doing that shuffling in your mind. How much do I worry about this? And, um, and you try to make the best decisions. And sometimes you, most of the times you're right, but sometimes you're not. So it always has that layer of, of concern, that layer of anxiety that you might miss something really important. I don't think I've ever thought about that stress and, and what that, that pressure might do for or to a doctor and how that would affect, you know, even how they go into that next patient or that next day. Right. And you could be incredibly upset about something that just happened, but your next patient is waiting and they've got their own issues and they're upset about something. And you have to somehow just shut that down and go in and be there for them and not be thinking about that patient who just yelled at you or who you just missed cancer or somebody who just went into the hospital because you maybe didn't notice something um, or it, it didn't even happen, but you're worried that maybe it happened, you know? So that's, that's a lot of um, a lot of poor nights of sleep. It sounds like it. Um, can we have another reading, please? Absolutely. Let's Thank see. Thank you. This is um, at the end of a really frustrating day that Nora had. And she goes home. She lives with her dog. She has recently gotten out of a relationship with a man that she'd had for three years that she thought was going to she was probably going to grow old with this man. So this has added to her extreme stress this year and, and doubting herself. She's having a lot of self-doubt. But this is where she goes home to her dog after a very difficult day. The dog's name is MC because she named her after Marie Curie, one of the most brilliant women scientists. MC always insists on climbing on my lap, all 65 pounds of her when I get home. At least one furry leg slides off because she doesn't fit, but she won't leave until I've scratched her head and rubbed her belly her tongue slopping out to anoint my arms and face with warm saliva. It's the best. If anything kept me from falling off the cliff, it was MC. I could practically hear her thoughts. Where have you been all day? She asked, lapping my nose. At work, same place as always, trying to keep people healthy. Why don't you just take care of dogs instead? They're so much nicer. She groaned happily as I stroked her chest, her eyes closed. Dogs don't need me as much. People keep doing dumb things, like nasty smoking, like not going out for walks. Absolutely. Stupid, self-destructive humans. Hey, don't act so superior. Dogs eat disgusting crap off the ground. They run in front of cars, which is obviously suicidal. MC kept her eyes shut and pretended to be asleep. 
<laughs> so, so this this concept of the semi-talking dog, I, I th- felt was taking a little bit of a chance. And obviously the dog doesn't actually talk, but this is what Nora is imagining the dog would be thinking or talking. And that runs throughout the book. And uh, I think it was a good idea because it lightens the mood a little bit. And it uh, and it shows a warm side too. Um, and I'm a dog person, so... Um, People have many people have commented that they think that the dog story actually made the book. And uh, there is a sequel that's been written. And people, the first thing people ask me is, is the dog in it? <laughs> I was thinking, though, I did love the idea of, the, of her thinking that the dog is pretending to be asleep and the dog, yes. you know, actually pretending to be asleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the dog's like, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's not wanting to admit it. <laughs> exactly. So the final question I get to ask is, we don't often read about burnout or about women over 50 searching for love or, or their sense of self in fiction. What might we be missing out on as readers? Oh, I think we're missing out on a tremendous amount, you know, and my characters in my earlier novels were all kind of young middle age, probably 30-ish, maybe approaching 40. Um, and because that's a very dynamic time in people's careers. Um, but I realized it was time for me to write something that was about a more mature woman. And partly because I was older, I felt like I was ready to write that at that time. Um, and uh, I felt like there was a lot to say that women don't just quit living their lives at middle age. This is kind of the old, you know, women of a certain age thing that, you know, once they've had their children and the children have moved out, they become fairly static. Um, Now, Nora in this book never did have children. She never married. And we reflect a lot on her relationship with her mother about why that happened. And it's pretty funny um, because her mother always said men are only good for one thing. And, And so Nora grew up with this attitude and, uh, and her mother had different men who came and went a little bit. Um, But we also almost never see a story from the angle of an elderly person, you know, someone in who is in her eighties and how she's even looking for companionship or something more in her life. She's feeling that her life needs more and is a bit empty. Uh, And um, And so I was, you know, I'm kind of running this twin story of these two women of different ages who are both seeking meaning and companionship. And, uh, and that was really fun and kind of revealing to me too. Um, In the sequel, if that gets published, it's five years later. And so the mom is actually 91 in that, and she is featured very prominently and she is actually in first person in the next story. So every third chapter is the mom, Vivian in first person. I interviewed about five 90-year-old women uh, to get into the mindset and to see how they viewed the world, how they viewed their mortality, uh, and just where they were at. Because a lot of people figure by the time you're 90, you're pretty much done. You're figuring you're going to just lay back and probably not live much longer. But that's not true. You know, you can still be very much alive at that age and still have goals. Oh, that's really refreshing. Could we have our final reading, please? Absolutely. And this one, this one uh, is about the mother. This is uh, one of their, in, in this book, it's all about their phone calls. My mother frequently called me on the phone. At 86, she seemed blissfully unaware of when I might be working. Let me correct that. She seemed blissfully unconcerned when I might be working. 
Don't get me wrong. Engaging and fairly intact for her age, mom simply lived in her own world. But then she always did. Her calls came in little flurries, and I rarely returned them until I got home. How come Austin never answers your phone anymore, she demanded. Because Austin's gone, I said patiently for the hundredth time. I know, I know, you told me. I just don't like it. I miss him. When are you two going to make up and get back together? Austin cherished my mother, and frankly, I'm surprised he didn't keep calling her himself. They could chat for an hour about her peevish Sun City neighbors and whether mom should invite the mailman in for coffee. He's only 75 and he won't retire, she carried on with admiration. He's quite handsome and fit by Sun City standards. He's got big quads and biceps from carrying all those packages. I might ask him in. Most of the rundown old geezers around here couldn't deliver mail to more than five houses without needing dialysis. Austin laughed and egged her on. I overheard their conversations because she nearly shouted, making Austin hold the phone away from his ear. He balanced a notebook on his knee and jotted down snippets of her words, gathering materials for one of his endlessly languishing novels. With MC and mom both adoring and yearning for Austin, my ego suffered when we broke up. Sometimes I think they would have contentedly traded me for him. Maybe, I sh- maybe they should have. Maybe I should live alone in a closet. Does a mailman even like coffee? Austin goaded her. Honey, I don't really mean coffee. She laughed and Austin snorted. My mother knew all about quads and biceps. A retired anatomy professor. I can probably blame her for how I ended up in medicine. Throughout my childhood, she waxed eloquent on the intricate machinery of the body, told me bedtime stories about red blood cells fighting their way through the chambers of the heart, carrying their little backpacks of oxygen molecules on a wild ride to the far reaches of the limbs, all the way out to the fingers and toes. I still remember the adventures of Ready and Steady, those plucky little corpuscles, But she spared me no reality, ready and steady, perished after four months of journeys, gobbled up by the spleen and replaced by their millions of cousins. Have you written the children's books yet? (laughs) No, (laughs) but that's an interesting idea. (laughs) That's a completely different market. Um, It sure is, but I love the little backpacking wearing. Little backpacks of oxygen. (laughs) I think that could really take off. Thank you so much for reading to us and for talking about the book. So where can we buy Out of Patience? I know that most people these days are buying their books on Amazon and it is available there um, and both as an ebook and as a paperback. It, you can also buy it directly through my publisher, which is the University of Nevada Press. If you go to the press's website, it's available through there. There's a site called Indie books that is an independent book distributor and it can give you a list of all the places and how to buy the book that way also um and right now i'm promoting the changing hands bookstore which is an independent bookstore in downtown phoenix um and they're carrying it as well oh wonderful sandra thank you so much for your time and your generosity it's been a pleasure talking to you and of course hearing you read it was great experience thank you so much anytime 